Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. remain standing as we continue on in our exposition of First Peter this morning. We'll begin reading in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while it is necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Please be seated. Most of you, no doubt, are familiar with the book of Job, an entire book of the Bible that deals with suffering, and it tells of the travails of the life of Job, how he lost everything, all his sheep, his cattle, his servants, his wealth, lost all of his children, and finally he lost his health. None of us will ever experience Job-like trials, nor would we want to. This was catastrophic. It was a loss in the matter of moments, left with nothing at all. And Job, as a result, despairs of life itself. And after these tragedies, you know how the rest of the book goes. Job has this interaction with his friends. They come as mourners and comforters and counselors, and yet not good ones. Because they can only see things from their perspective. Surely you have done something wrong, Job. Surely you have sinned. Surely you have made God angry, and God is therefore punishing you. You are deserving what you are getting. That can only be the logical conclusion, as it seems to Job's friends. Yet Job knows of no sin that he committed, knows of no reason why God would seemingly unjustly send this upon him. He is, as it were, an innocent sufferer. But what I find fascinating about this book, and perhaps you do as well, is that the reader is given a different perspective. Whereas Job and his friends see it only from earth looking to heaven, they only have an earthly perspective. The reader is given a perspective of heaven looking down upon earth, looking down upon Job. The reader is given a heavenly perspective. Because they have this prologue at the beginning with this conversation between God and Satan. 
And there they hear God saying to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And so from that conversation, we know that Job is not being punished as an evildoer. Rather, he's being held up as a model of faith and of righteousness. That God is not angry at all, but rather he's delighting in his servants. And that perspective changes everything. Changes the entirety of how we read the book of Job. Otherwise, we might be right alongside Job's friends, accusing Job. Or perhaps we would be like Job himself, perhaps wanting to accuse God of wrongdoing. But that heavenly perspective changes everything. Well, this morning as we come to 1 Peter, we are given some heavenly perspective on trials. Why we go through them, and even what we can benefit from them. And this is so needed because God is not absent of our trials, of our tribulations, but works in and through them in our life. And so we see them, hopefully, as we look at this passage, as God sees them. And we gain some perspective this morning. We'll look at this passage in four points. Trials are necessary. Trials are valuable. Trials are for God's glory. And trials are for our good. First, trials are necessary. Peter, as we've been looking at this passage, jumps into this doxology, this praise for the salvation and election that God has wrought. And an inheritance, as he goes on to say, that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And as a result, we have a real and certain and living hope, as we saw last week. And this hope and this inheritance comes with the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back again. As one commentator puts it, Peter focuses on the eschatological, the end times hope of believers and that which most certainly awaits them. And he even begins, again, this section, the verses that we looked at this morning with this phrase, in this you rejoice. That we're to rejoice in this future hope. However, the reader who is reading this letter thus far might say, well, you know, that's great, Peter. I'm glad for what Christ has done for me. I look forward to what awaits. But how about now? Because quite frankly, life now is really, really difficult. It's not enjoyable being a follower of Jesus Christ. Specifically in the context in which they lived, where they were enduring persecution, even death. 
And so the reader might say, my very life, my existence and that of my family is being threatened. What do I do with that? And perhaps you can identify with that this morning. You can say, well, this is great, Pastor Joel, thanks. No doubt when Jesus comes back, everything will be great. I understand that. But what does that do for me today? When I have to endure chronic pain in a deteriorating body, what does that do for me tomorrow when I have to go back to a job that I don't enjoy and work for a boss that is insufferable? What does that do for me this week when I have to go on with a spouse that is no longer there with me? Or when I have to talk to one of my children or one of my grandchildren that is no longer walking with the Lord? What does this do for me when, quite frankly, it's really hard to live the Christian life in a secular society? I understand no problems then, but there are a lot of problems now. I'm in the thick of it. So it's hard for me to think past today or this week, let alone look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever that may be. Well, as we've seen this passage, Peter is not ignorant of that reality, nor does he gloss over it. Rather, he acknowledges it. As he says in verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while it's necessary you be tested by various trials. Or another translation puts it this way, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. Notice there what Peter is saying. It is necessary. You had to suffer these trials. And so as we look at this subject of trials and of tribulations, we begin this way, that sufferings or the suffering that we endure, is a necessity of the Christian life. It's not an opt-in, opt-out option. We can't say, I'll be a Christian, but hold the problems, please. Every Christian will have to endure trials, because trials are necessary. You heard me right. Trials are are necessary for you to walk the Christian life, to be a Christian in this life. And I know that's not a popular statement. That's something that you probably do not want to hear this morning. It's something that many preachers do not want to preach upon. It's kind of like a car salesman that tells you of all the problems that this car will have in the next five years. Or the military recruiter telling you of the pain, sweat, and tears of basic training. And then you're going to go on to sleepless nights and time away from family and bad pay and really poor food and military service. All of those things are true, are they not? But you're probably not going to sell many cars nor get many recruits. Yet the Bible doesn't hide this reality. The reality of suffering for believers. And at the very least, I think that points to its truthfulness, its veracity, the the believability of the Bible. 
That this isn't hidden to us. Notice Peter doesn't hide this. And he, he, he's writing to believers. Saying this is what's going to take place. The reality is that God is not always going to steer you around storms. The reality is that sometimes he's going to have you head straight for them. And that is not just the testimony of Peter. That is the testimony of scripture. Jesus says in Matthew 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Acts 14, verse 22, this is the apostles' teaching here. It says, through many tribula- tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Peter will go on to say in chapter 4 of this letter, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. Notice it's not strange. This is not abnormal. No, this is the normal Christian life. And anyone who would say otherwise, or gloss over them, or try to spin them in a positive way is a false teacher. Because the scriptures does not. And trials are necessary because they are purposeful. Because they come from a God who always has a purpose. Everything he does or everything he allows always comes with purpose. We may not know the full extent of that purpose, right? Just as Job didn't know why he was going through the things that he was going through. And oftentimes we'll be the same. We will be left in the dark. We might have little glimmers. We may see some reasons. But the full extent of it, no doubt, will never be known until glory. And some of you will experience more trials than others. Nor will all of your trials be the same. So it's no use comparing yourself to someone else. That's why Peter says here that you have been grieved by various trials. The trials are as various as the people that have to endure them. And God sometimes will allow sickness, affliction, disappointment, persecution, pain, poverty. Sometimes he'll withhold spiritual blessings, peace, joy, assurance. Sometimes he'll allow us to experience the full extent of the misery of our sin here in this life. Sometimes you'll experience trials directly. Other times you'll experience them indirectly through the ones that you love. Watching them have to endure. But our trials are purposeful. And they are specifically tailored to you. God is not limited in what he may or may not use. But we must be confident in this. No matter what you're enduring or what you will endure. It is necessary. And it has purpose. And that's the grounds for this entire subject of trials and of pain. Because it's only in that ground that we can have comforts. Because if it's just all random, or by chance, or bad luck, as they say, Well, that's the ground for hopelessness. So let us never be caught saying or or never even think 
that God is not in this. God is in everything that comes to pass. Yes, even in our pain, even in our trials. It's only from there that good spiritual fruit can grow. And we see some of this. Second, then, is we see that trials are valuable, as he goes on to say, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, that genuineness, as he says it there, is a, a measure. That these trials test the true nature of your faith. And Peter goes on to give a metaphor here. He says, your faith is more precious than gold, though tested by fire. You understand that metaphor, do you not? That gold, for gold to be gold, it has to go through that refining process. That you do not just find bars of gold or gold coins in nature, do you? If you do, let me know. I'd like to come and find them with you. But gold in its natural state is intermixed with a lot of other things, with rock and clay and minerals. It's mixed with a lot of things that don't have value. They call that dross. The only way to remove the dross is to heat it by fire. And to heat it to a, to a super heat. To get it to a molten state. Because only through that fire that the impurities are burnt away, are removed. It's only through that fire that you can have pure gold. 24 karat gold. But notice this. The fire never hurts the gold, does it? Nor does the gold burn up. Nor is the Gold damaged by the fire. And Peter here is linking your faith to that of gold. That your faith is like that. That when you go through the crucible of trials, yes, there is heat. Yes, we endure that uncomfortable affliction. But our faith is not being harmed. It's being helped. It's being purified. It may not feel like it at the time, does it? Oftentimes we think, I don't know, Lord. I don't know if I will emerge the other side of this. This is too much. But it's not our faith, but rather the impurities, the dross, the things of this earth that are being taken away. False idols, the false securities, the false comforts. So that all that we have is left is faith. Faith alone. Pure faith. Pure hope. Pure trust in God. That is what is precious and valuable in the sight of God. No one wants gold in its impure or natural state. So in the same way, God does not want to leave us in our natural states. We need to go through that sanctifying, that purifying process. And that takes place by fire. But the result is that our faith is more precious than gold. But here's the key. This is something to hold on to when you endure these things. That God is applying the right amount of heat. 
for you to be made pure, for you to be made like Christ. Never too much, never too little. Always right. Again, think of Job. God didn't send these afflictions upon him, but he allowed them. He allowed Satan to use them in Job's life. And yet we hear that God sets the parameters of what Satan is allowed to do. Because if it was up to Satan, Satan would have destroyed Job. That's what Satan desires. He's a roaring lion that desires to consume. But God only allows that which would be for the good. For the good of Job. And even for our own good. And it's even odd, is it not, that Satan would be used for good. But yes, God uses Satan for good. Satan is a pawn in the hands of our God. Listen to what John Newton, the the writer of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, wrote in one of his letters. John Newton was a pastor. And he writes this, The Lord loves his children, but he will not spoil them. Their sin sickness requires strong medicine, some of which is very unpleasant. It is comforting to know that every dose is prepared by his own hand. And not one is administered in vain, nor is it repeated more often than is needful to answer his purposed end. Afflictions are useful and in a degree necessary to keep alive in us a conviction of the vanity and unsatisfying nature of the present world, to call our thoughts upward where our true treasure is and where our heart ought to be. Trials are medicine which our gracious and wise physician prescribes because we need them. And he portions the frequency and dose of them to what the case requires. And listen how he ends. The Lord afflicts us for our good. The Lord afflicts us for our good. We're to take his medicine administered by his hand even as we remain perfectly in that fatherly hand. And so as Job goes on to say in Job 23.10, when the Lord has tried me, I shall be as gold, he says. For as we read in Hebrews 12.6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Well, third then, trials are for God's glory. You're not shocked to hear that coming from a Presbyterian pastor, are you? The trials are for God's glory. It might be the most Presbyterian reason ever. It's like my son the other day when I asked him, my three-year-old son, why is it that we look both ways before crossing the road? To which he responded, for his own glory. Poor preacher's kids. (laughs) And you might think the same as I give you this. What are trials for? Well, they're for his own glory. But notice what it says here. This is exactly what Peter says. That these trials may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Again, Peter points to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation that is about to be revealed. For Peter, it's always about the future. That the future is never absent from the present, even in afflictions. That this glory and hope and praise will be received and will come to God from His people, from His church. That they, as they gather together from the four corners of the earth, as they come together in one final church, in one final chorus of praise, then they will come from all walks of life, all having endured various trials throughout the journey. But nevertheless, each and every one of them has been sustained by the same God. Saved by the same Savior. And dwelt by the same Holy Spirit. And I think our trials and our tribulations give God glory because our suffering points to the suffering of Christ. That through our suffering, we proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Again, my suffering, your sufferings are nothing. Our sufferings are not meritorious. We do not have some type of martyr complex that we are earning or procuring favor with God or earning our way to heaven. Far from it. My sufferings are nothing, but Christ's sufferings are everything. That Christ suffered for me and for you. That he is the only true innocent suffering sufferer. And through his sufferings, we are saved. By his stripes, we are healed. Through Christ's suffering, there is hope and peace and meaning. Indeed, only through Christ's sufferings is there any meaning to my suffering. And it points us, and it points everyone that may see what we are going through. Hopefully not to ourselves. We don't say, look at me. Look at what I have to endure. Oh, pity me. No, may we always say, oh, praise God. Because it's Christ that gives any meaning to my sufferings at all. It points us and everyone else to the cross. Only there is true glory. And one day, all of our sufferings will be taken away. And that's why Peter goes on to say here that our trials are just for a little while, he says. It's not to say that our trials may be short. They may not be. They may be lifelong. But in the light of eternity, they're only for a little while. They're only a blip on the screen, a drop in the ocean. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, our present trials are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory yet to be revealed. God is working through our trials for his own glory, both now and for all eternity. Well, last, fourth, trials are for our good. If it's for God's glory, then of course it'll be for our good, our ultimate good. Don't get me wrong, the circumstances may not be good. It actually may be very terrible, even tragic. But the God who loves us says that he'll even work this together for our good. And we see some of this at the very end, verses 8 and 9. 
that though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. That through your trials, the love of Christ is being deepened in you. Through your trials, your faith and your belief is being extended. That those roots are going farther down into the love of God and into trusting who He is. Again, humanly speaking, that should not happen. For the unbeliever, when they go through trials, when they go through difficulties, they already hate God and distrust Him. And the trials are all the more reason to do exactly what they are doing. To hate God. And to not trust Him. But not for the Christian. Affliction fuels the fire of faith. Fuels the fire of love and belief. As again, Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Again, that is part of the genuineness. That is part of the testing. It's part of the refiner's fire. And so whatever you're going through this day, I encourage you to take time to do some self-examination, to think through these things, to not waste your trials or your afflictions, but say, how is the love of God being deepened through this? How is my trust and faith growing? What things continually need to be removed? What ways do I need to improve in this? How can I cling more to Christ and to his promises? That is a tough exercise to do. But in the end, you will have that much more reason to rejoice. And notice that, that he begins this section with saying, in this you rejoice, and he ends this section in the, in the same way, that you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That we can have joy and rejoicing even throughout our trials. That is only by the work of his spirit. But you might be saying this day, Pastor, I understand. But I'm still grieving. I still have a lot of questions. A lot of doubts. A lot of fears. It's hard for me to rejoice. It's hard for me to have joy. It's hard for me to see good or glory or, or what you're doing, how this is valuable. Quite frankly, it's terrible. It's awful. I just want it to go away. I want it to be how it was. I appreciate that. That is being honest. But notice this. Peter says, for a while you have been grieved. Notice that there is still grief in the midst of this. You never need to apologize for your grief or your tears, or your frustration. No, we don't grieve as those without hope. No, we have hope, but that doesn't mean that we don't grieve at all. We're not to face these things as stoics. No, we're to have the full gamut of emotions and thoughts. Job, again, tore his robe. He shaved his head, and he wept. And yet it says in all of these things, he did not sin. Even though he had this vexation of the soul, And grieved, he did not sin. To not have those emotions would be to be not human. 
uh, we are to grieve. Also, we don't ask for trials or tribulations. Nor is it wrong to ask for them to be removed. We know that Paul asked for his trial and his affliction to be removed. And even though we can have that rejoicing, even though we can have joy in what God is doing, at the same time we can despise and even hate the trouble of the trial. We can despise the difficulties of them. And so there is simultaneously joy and grief. That is the multifaceted aspects of our emotions in trials. But what I hope we see from this passage this morning is that we gain some perspective. That Peter is giving us some wisdom from above. To meditate not on how we see things, but how God sees them. What he's doing for you and what he is doing in you. As John Calvin says, we often need to borrow the spectacles of God. The glasses of God to see the world aright. Otherwise we'll be blinded by our own thoughts, by our own emotions. And so, let me try to summarize this as we conclude. And I do so with the life of Joseph. Like Job, there's probably no one that experienced more trials and afflictions than Joseph. But at the very end, he's given some understanding, some reason for why he had to go through all that he went through. And we know those famous words that he says to his brothers that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive. He's given some God-given perspective. But I imagine that when he was in the pits and as he was in the prison, it was pretty hard to have that kind of perspective. Nor could he have ever imagined that one day he would be in the palace of Pharaoh. But once he was in the past, then he was able to be reflective. He was able to give some thought. And then he understood the reason why he had to go through all that he went through. Well, I think that's a fitting analogy. Peter is giving us some perspective. He's giving some perspective from the palace. Not the palace of Pharaoh but the palace and throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's only then and there that we will fully and finally understand all the things that we have to endure and go through in this life. But until then, let us borrow the spectacles of God. Let us put on the Word of God. Let us put on the Spirit of God, even as it points us forward to the cross of God, for it's there that we have perspective on our sufferings. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a challenging subject, not because it's hard for us to understand. No, we understand it. We just don't like it. And Lord, we do not want to go through the trials. We do not want to go through the fire. But yet, Lord, we know that which is good for us is that which is given to us by your hands. And therefore, we endure it for your sake, Lord, that you may gain glory 
And even through it, O oh Lord, you do it for our good. Lord, only an omnipotent, omniscient God can do such a thing as that. To take pain and bring about that which would be for your glory and for your praise and even for our good, O oh God. We pray that you would do it in our life, in the life of this church. For we pray in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.